I actually want to go into Dean's case. This is a 50-year-old perimenopausal research scientist. She works in a lab for a major pharma company in the area, and she had an abnormal mammogram that led to an MRI, and she had a one-centimeter mass in the upper outer quadrant of the left breast with a rapid enhancement. She had a biopsy of the breast mass that showed an invasive ductal cancer. The tumor was well-differentiated, grade 1, and there were some small foci suspicious for a lymphatic permeation around the primary tumor. The ER was 85%, PR was 98%, KI67 was borderline at 12%, and the HER2 was 1 plus by immunohistochemistry, and then a subsequent FISH on the HER2 was negative. She had no other medical problems, she was taking no medications, no family history, no other risk factors. She elected to have a bilateral mastectomy without reconstruction, as I would say a lot of patients are doing nowadays, having bilateral mastectomies, it seems like. I've had a run of those. She had a 1.4 by 0.6 by 0.7 centimeter well-differentiated infiltrating ductal cancer, and there's a background of low-grade DCIS. Her contralateral right breast had atypical lobular hyperplasia, and the sentinel lymph node on the invasive cancer site had a small metastatic focus over 2 millimeters in size, but not a you know, large lymph node metastasis. Just side note, because we had Terry Mominus from the NSABP yesterday, and we were talking about the sentinel node. She only had one sentinel node? She had one sentinel How often do you see that? Because theoretically, they should be having three. Gary? No, we always see three or four at least, yeah. Is that typically what you see? Was this unusual? I typically see more than that. I think it depends on the patient, different factors. But she went on to have additional axillary nodes removed, seven in total, which were negative. So before we go further with this, maybe we can just backtrack a little bit and talk about your conversations with this woman. Was she trying to research this and understand it, or was she sort of taking a step back and asking you, What do you recommend? She wasn't overly researching it in terms of her treatment, although she had uh, natural reluctance to chemotherapy. Any specific reluctance? Any experiences? No particular experience. She worked in a lab, had a very busy job in the lab at all hours, at night and day. What was her family situation? Married with some older teenager, college-age kids. But you know, she was not in breast cancer research or anything like that. So, Edith, obviously one question that's going to come up here is should an oncotype be sent or integrated into this situation? What are your thoughts about that? The question is, would you change management of this patient based on the result of the oncotype DX? If the patient is willing to receive hormonal therapy, if the recurrence score is low, then I would order the test. If the decision has been made that this patient will receive adjuvant systemic chemotherapy for a limited number of cycles, followed by hormonal therapy to optimize her outcome, then I would not order the Oncotype DX. So in my practice, we would not order the Oncotype DX because I would manage these patients with AC followed by T, a usual approach, AC followed by weekly paclitaxel, and then followed by hormonal therapy. And if she had a completely negative sentinel node, would you feel any differently? Yes. You would get an archetype? Yes. Recommend an archetype? Yes. And then in that situation, then we would have a 1.4 centimeter grade one, strongly ER positive, PR positive. So the question is, do you really expect the Oncotype DX to give you any additional information? And the likelihood that it would give you a high recurrence score is very low in the setting of these biological parameters. But I think that's helpful information in our practice for patients with small ER positive breast cancers. 
if they are not negative. So, Eric, it sounds like Edith is concerned about the archetype in a no positive situation. What do we know right now about that? So I'll say that, and then I'll add what I would do, and Edith knows that I'm going to disagree. So we know less than we would like, but we actually know a moderate amount, and I think that it's important to consider the totality of what we know and not just focus on individual studies. So we have the very old study from Kathy Albane that randomized postmenopausal ER-positive, node-positive patients to tamoxifen alone or tamoxifen after CAF chemotherapy. There was a third arm that's irrelevant to this discussion because it wasn't included in the oncotype analysis. So again, half the patients got tamoxifen, half the patients got CAF times six, followed by tamoxifen. And what they found when they went back and looked at a subset of those patients and the tumors that those patients had was that Oncotype was prognostic and was predictive. So it was prognostic of outcome, and it also appeared to help determine whether chemotherapy would be of benefit or not. And in patients who had a low Oncotype, the added value of CAF chemotherapy in that analysis was essentially nil. Now, having said that, the disease-free survival at 10 years of these women was not particularly favorable, and that has led many people to be concerned. It's important to point out that this was disease-free survival, so it is not just looking at distant disease-free survival. It's looking at all events. It's looking at deaths from other causes, and these were postmenopausal women to begin with. So at 10 years out, you can imagine some number of these women are dying of other causes. We have data from Lori Goldstein's study. Lori's study compared AC versus AT in women with node negative and 1 to 3 node positive breast cancer. And there, in patients with 1 to 3 node positive breast cancer, Oncotype was again prognostic. Important caveat here is that all of the women received chemotherapy but at a minimum suggested that a short course of chemotherapy in patients who had a relatively low Oncotype score was more than adequate to achieve a very, very favorable outcome. Now, in terms of this patient... Can I just ask you to add one more database that was just presented at San Antonio that I think maybe is relevant here, which is the trans-attack presentation of Oncotype in the attack patient? Right. So it has been suggested that perhaps Oncotype would look differently with an AI than with tamoxifen. And what that presentation suggested is that similar to tamoxifen with an AI, Oncotype is also prognostic. The other thing about that was that there were node-positive patients in there. Absolutely. And, of course, they couldn't dissect out the chemo, but they did show a lot lower relapse rate in those patients than what the SWOG study did. Right. So in terms of this patient... I'm actually not giving this woman chemotherapy. She'd have to twist my arm to give her chemotherapy. So the only (laughs) way I'm giving this woman chemotherapy is if she has a high Oncotype score. She's got a strongly ERPR positive tumor that's low grade, that has minimal lymph node involvement. She fits into the category where in multiple studies, in multiple retrospective analyses, the benefit associated either with chemotherapy or with giving more chemotherapy was very, very modest. And so 
I actually don't care whether you get Oncotype or not. If you get Oncotype, I'll look at it. And if it turned out to be high, which I think is extremely unlikely, I would give her chemotherapy. But if she said, I'm not taking chemotherapy anyway, I could very happily give her endocrine therapy alone without Oncotype. Just to clarify, have you ordered the Oncotype in a patient who is node positive? I have, and long before Oncotype, I have treated patients like this with endocrine therapy alone. Kathy? Yeah, actually, I agree with Eric entirely. I'm not thinking of giving this lady chemotherapy. There's an earlier analysis of Kathy Albain's study that looked at strength of ER positivity and tumor grade, and her two retrospectively determined that already put this lady in the group without Oncotype, where there was no benefit to getting chemotherapy at all. So I also would only order Oncotype in this lady with the thought that the only way it would change my management was if she had a high score, which I think would be unlikely but not unconceivable, right. but that's the only way I would use it in the way it would change my management. This is a lady, by the way, who would be eligible for my adjuvant trial. And not only would I not recommend it to her unless I knew she had a high score, I would try to dissuade her from entering 5103, even though she meets the eligibility criteria. The study I would talk to her about is the swag bisphosphonate study, because that would have no stipulations on hormones, what hormones, chemo or to not chemo, but would add a bisphosphonate that I think she might benefit from. I, w- I like to actually get into the bisphosphonate thing, but just to clarify, to get on the record, what is your study, the design? So E5103 looks at adding bevacizumab to the adjuvant therapy of pathogens with either node-positive disease or high-risk node-negative disease. It has three arms, a group that gets only the chemotherapy, which is four cycles of AC, followed by weekly paclitaxel for 12 weeks. A group that gets the same chemotherapy with bevacizumab during the chemotherapy, so for roughly six months, and a group that gets the chemotherapy with Bev concurrent with chemotherapy and an additional six months of bevacizumab monotherapy. So it's both an attempt to see if adding Bev is helpful and to get some indication about duration. So I'll take a step, make it even more controversial what I just said, is that my answer would be the same if she were 42. And my answer would be the same if she were 32. Yes, so. and the difference there is that I would treat her as per the ABCSG trial, which looked at ovarian suppression with either tamoxifen or an AI, and I would treat her with ovarian suppression and tamoxifen, not knowing for sure whether ovarian suppression added to the tamoxifen or not, although our European colleagues would tell us that they were convinced that it did. Alan? Edith, you said that you would have given this patient acetaxel. With this sort of low burden of disease in the node, is this a patient you might consider giving a shorter course of chemotherapy, TC, CMF? Sure, those are also options. Options, or I mean, do you do that? Do you I've, use TC. I, I've used TC in two patients. That's I what, think. That's what yeah. my guess. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but you know, the challenge that we all have, you know, pretty evident in the discussion today, is that we have this one patient, and we just do not know what really will happen with her. So the biology really looks like really one of the better tumors if someone is going to develop a tumor. It's not positive, so it's not completely a benign tumor because it already went to the lymph nodes. So we have the challenges of the uncertainty of not knowing the gene profile of this tumor. Even if we do the Oncotype DX, we look at 16 genes out of 25,000 genes within that tumor. And in my practice, I really prefer to sway 
on over-treatment and under-treatment because of the consequences of under-treatment for that individual patient. So this, of course, leads to potential over-treating many patients, but it may save the life of some and just don't know who the ones who will be saved are. But again, it's a very difficult decision that we all have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I'm trying to put myself in the position of this patient. Yeah. What happened? This patient presented a few months after San Antonio of 07, so shortly after Kathy Alvin's presentation. And I went ahead and sent the oncotype. And she had a recurrent score of 14. And the wow. ER was you know, strongly positive, 8.6. PR was 7.5. So I actually talked to Kathy Albain about her data, and she sent me her slide set, and I talked to the patient about it. And, I mean, this is, you know, breast cancer is a hormone-related disease. This is a well-differentiated grade 1 tumor, and I gave her tamoxifen and Zolidex. I want to jump out a little bit on the choice of hormone therapy, and I don't know whether you discussed with her the possibility of a bisphosphonate, you know, based on, because she now is kind of fitting into the Austrian study that was presented last ASCO meeting, you know, showing 35% fewer recurrences in people who got zoledronic acid every six months, and also pretty good disease-free survival, like 94% in people who got ovarian suppression with either tamoxifen or an AI. What went into the decision about the hormones? Well, in terms of the hormones, my thought was that she's 50, and that if I did five years of TAM and five years of letrozole, that's 10 years of therapy. And again, I think there are good benefits of TAM on the bones and the lipid profile. And she's a very thin-built Asian female, which may be some risk of osteopenia, osteoporosis there. So I chose tamoxifen as initial therapy. But also ovarian suppression? Again, because she was 50, I thought in seven periods, I wanted to you know, add the Zelodex, at least for a couple of years. And did you talk to her about a bisphosphonate? I did not. I did not. So, Eric, what about this issue of choice of hormonal therapy for this lady and the question of a bisphosphonate? So, other than the ABCSG trial, I am aware of no data from any of the adjuvant AI trials that address using an AI upfront in a woman who is premenopausal at diagnosis. So, any woman who is premenopausal at diagnosis who comes to see me gets a recommendation to receive tamoxifen as her initial therapy, and that's whether she gets tamoxifen alone, tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression, or even if she chooses to have her ovaries removed because she was premenopausal at diagnosis and those women were not included in the trials. In the ABCSG trial, ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen and ovarian suppression plus an AI were equivalent. And while we don't have final quality of life data comparing tamoxifen and an AI in these young women, I think it's fair to say that the experience that most of us have had in soft and text is that, if anything, ovarian suppression and an AI is a pretty difficult treatment. So given two treatments that are equivalent, I would give ovarian suppression and tamoxifen. In terms of the zoledronic acid Before issue, you go too far out, just yeah. to pick up on that point, do you agree, Edith, that symptoms are worse when you ablate or remove the ovaries with an AI versus tamoxifen? I, mean, I don't think I've seen data on that. I have not seen any quality of life studies from the Austrian right. data set. Agreed. Um, no, but my gestalt in treating a lot of ladies yes. with hormone therapy without chemo is also that the AIs, particularly in either the younger, kind of recently postmenopausal folk or the premenopausal women that I'm giving ovarian suppression or ovarian ablation to, it is a tougher road. I think what's interesting is our patterns of care studies consistently show in community-based practice, by far the most common endocrine therapy has been tamoxifen alone. What I think is interesting is when do you bring in ovarian suppression and ablation? 
it's not being done that much and that you look at Europe and trials like this and they're getting really good results. And that's why the soft trial is so important because there are many people who believe fervently that they know that ovarian suppression is important in these women and we simply don't have the data to know that. So the soft trial will finally get at that issue, but right now we don't know. I certainly use ovarian suppression. I happen to be one of the acknowledged believers. I don't do it in everyone because ovarian suppression in a young premenopausal woman is also not such an easy thing from a quality of life standpoint. So I tend to think about it not actually in someone who's 50 who I suspect is going to get to menopause on her own within the next couple of years. I tend to think about it in my 30 and 40-year-old women who are at particularly high risk. Now, many of those women are going to be getting chemotherapy, so I don't add it immediately. But you know, my 23-year-old with ER-positive inflammatory disease you can bet, heard from me, that one of my goals for her therapy was for her to become a postmenopausal woman whose ovaries weren't functioning. And if the chemotherapy didn't accomplish that, then we'd be adding something after her chemotherapy to make sure that that was part of her therapy. In our practice, we would not recommend ovarian function suppression as standard of care for premenopausal women whose tumors are ER positive. We strongly believe on conducting the soft trial. And until we complete that trial, we'll just continue managing patients blindly. And tamoxifen is our standard if a patient does not go and study. So just real quick about bisphosphonates. We're still waiting for the next study, maybe the Azure study. We didn't see it at San Antonio. We had one trial out there. Eric, would you say to this woman, you know, I need to tell you about something? So this is the one situation where I would talk to someone about an adjuvant bisphosphonate with the hope that it might prevent recurrence. And it's because, you know, this is the situation where it was specifically looked at in the ABCSG trial. I don't do it in everyone. Martine Picard in her discussion, which was a very elegant discussion, said at the end that she viewed all of this as preliminary and wouldn't view this as standard in anyone. What we decided as a group right after the ABCSG trial is that for this group of women who were receiving ovarian suppression and tamoxifen, that we would talk about it, and that apart from that, we would not consider it standard, and that we would not view it as in any way incorrect not to do it in these patients. And I will add that neither text nor soft allow the use of a bisphosphonate unless a patient has bone loss. So you actually can't put a patient on text and soft without violating the protocol and add a bisphosphonate. Brenda, did you have a question? I was concerned about you saying even with oophorectomy, you would still use tamoxifen. Yeah. I mean, I think we think, good, I've made her postmenopausal, now I'm comfortable using an AI. Her tumor arose when she was premenopausal. We don't know that those women have any greater effect from an AI than from tamoxifen. And if you think about it, ovarian suppression and an AI work in similar mechanisms. They both deprive the tumor of estrogen. Tamoxifen works differently. In a woman who you have suddenly made postmenopausal, it's possible that adding an AI at that point in time adds nothing. And yet, we do have reason to believe that tamoxifen adds to making a woman postmenopausal. We may not know the converse. We may not know that ovarian suppression adds to tamoxifen. But, for example, we know that we make many women postmenopausal with chemotherapy, and yet there's a benefit from tamoxifen across the board in premenopausal women with ER-positive breast cancer. So 
if you're premenopausal at diagnosis, and so that means for me, you've had a period in the last year, you walk in to see me for a consult, I will tell you that your first hormonal therapy should be tamoxifen. And you'll do that for five years and then rethink? So the one situation where I may think about doing that for less than five years and crossing over is that woman whose ovaries have been removed. And where I don't have to worry at all about the possibility that her ovaries are going to start functioning again. Because in women who develop chemotherapy-induced ovarian suppression, as you know, some number of these women recover ovarian function and have periods. Some number of these women don't have periods, but actually have estrogen levels that are in the premenopausal range. So occasionally in those women who have an oophorectomy, I'll think about switching after a couple of years. And that, I acknowledge, is not based on the direct results of any trial. Mark? For a patient who's 35 years old or so, who is not inflammatory, who is node positive, you gave chemo, and they're on tamoxifen for five years, and they're still not projected to go through menopause naturally, and their menopausal profile is still premenopausal, do you continue tamoxifen longer? No, I don't continue I mean, it's easy to bridge them if it looks like they're going to be going into menopause anyway, by age. Yeah. So in that patient, just back to this ovarian suppression question, I don't consider ovarian suppression standard, although I talk about it in everyone, and I encourage those women to participate in soft, but if a woman pushed me to do it outside of the study, I would. And in terms of the duration of tamoxifen question, I don't believe that the data that have been presented by Richard Pito and colleagues looking at longer duration of tamoxifen are anything close to convincing. And I stopped tamoxifen at the end of five years, and I don't know what we should do in women who remain premenopausal at that five-year point. Although we should say that Richard Pito says he believes that it decreases the recurrence rate 15% in ER-positive patients. It may not prove it. It may not be published, but that is what he says. So, Edith, you have a straightforward premenopausal patient who has five positive nodes. She gets out to five years. As Mark says, she starts out age 35, so still menstruating. Yeah, we manage these patients with five years of tamoxifen and then stop. But this is reminiscent of what happened certainly in my career. So eight, ten years ago when people were doing bone marrow transplants right and left, and it became like the right thing to do. And in our practice, we said, well, we don't have the data. Let's randomize the patients to transplant versus no transplant. And towards that period, I started thinking, my gosh, am I doing the right thing, that I'm not just jumping in the bandwagon of everyone else? And he actually taught me a lesson that sometimes it's good to wait a little bit for the data so that we can manage the patients based on some data. So just out so, of curiosity, yeah. then if you've got a 60-year-old patient who's postmenopausal, <laughs> she's got five positive nodes, it gets out to five years, sure you want to put her on a trial, but you can't go on a trial, you continue or not. If a patient has received five years of an AI, five positive nodes, yes, I'm extending the AI longer than, than, than that time for these patients. After a thorough discussion, after I really try to convince the patient to go on the MS-17 randomization trial. No, to audience, Edith's face oh, is red. A question for Kathy Miller. In, in your young, young women yeah. with ovarian suppression, uh-huh. And tamoxifen, how long are you doing the ovarian suppression? I do the ovarian suppression for three years, which is totally arbitrary, but in the bulk of the European studies that used ovarian suppression that provide some support for that, they used it for three years. That also potentially has some advantages for their long-term health because most of them recover menses and ovarian function, whether that's good or bad for their breast cancer, I don't know, but it certainly is good for their bones. It might be good for their heart. They whine less about toxicities of therapy, so it's good for me and 
my quality of life. Um, <laughs> but most of the studies that have reported have used that duration. So when I don't enroll someone in the soft trial and we go off-road and do this on our own, I use the same duration. Final comment from Edith? Yeah, we certainly you know, would like to manage all patients based on solid data, and sometimes they really do not exist. So we talk about the art of oncology, and yesterday the term that was discussed was creative oncology. We really try to do the best with the data available based on what we know and the life of our patients. It's really interesting, though, if you look again at patterns of care in terms of this question of continuation of an AI, what we've seen in the last few years, without any new data coming out, is a real shift towards continuing, both in the researchers, we saw that first, and then we saw it in the docs in practice. And I think it was more from what we could tell in asking people an increased awareness of the risk. That even though we had this sort of general feeling that people are at risk after five years, particularly in the node positive situation, you know, when people quote overall 4% relapse a year, 20% at years five to 10, from what we can tell, that's what's changing what people do. Obviously, there's no new data out there, and there are trials out there. But in some ways, it's also patient-driven. I mean, you get a patient who's got five positive nodes, and they're on a Remedex, and they're tolerating their Remedex, and you say, oh, time to stop. And they go, well, you know, I really would like to just continue my Remedex, because there's some comfort in doing something than stopping and doing nothing. And so sometimes it's patient-driven. They come in and tell you they don't want to stop it. That's sort of like their security.